You're listening to a podcast from 702. So on the show is the masterclass. And uh, today we are talking about um, shops and how the retail experience is designed uh, in order to nudge you towards making a purchase. I'll tell you about the request from Tabangsi Otto as we get into it with um, our guest. And that is Lee Crumble, behavioral linguist and the founder of Breadcrumbs. 702 Masterclass. Tamang wanted to know about why stores are designed the way they are. Why our shops have the layout or even the shop storefronts that they have. He noted that whenever he enters into, into a store, rather, there's often this open space, um, especially with grocery retailers, this open space. Uh, and then you almost herd it into a flow, into a pattern of movement across the store. And he wanted to know if there's any particular design thinking around the way stores are designed. And if so, what is the desired behavior um, that uh, the retailers want from us? And so we've put this up as a masterclass from uh, and invited Lee Crumble onto the show. Um, and we'll be looking at uh, all of these aspects that he raises. Uh, but it made me think a lot as well about my own experiences. And I want your own. You know, ever been inside a shop where you just felt restless or you became irritable, for instance. I find that with stores that have really, really loud music, um, I don't know how the staff can bear that, but just simply cannot stay in there long enough. So I suspect that that is uh, not a desirable uh, design uh, aspect or even experience uh, element for the shopper. It's not a desirable one. It doesn't produce the desirable results. Um, and then when you compare that to shopping experiences that are just seamless, that make the shopping experience better, um, uh, where you're able to think, make your choices quite clearly. Um, and perhaps that's where they, they, they've really achieved the objective because great store presentation and product merchandising, I suspect, is like a good book. You know, it's got to have a great cover. It's got to entice you. It's got to have an interesting first chapter. And then, of course, just a satisfying conclusion um, so that the audience keeps wanting more and coming back. So let's find out from Lee if there's any truth to that and why things are designed the way the way they are. So if you have any thoughts or any insights or observations about uh, certain retailers and how they've designed their spaces and certain elements. We welcome your calls in today's masterclass on 11 883 for your SMSs as well as your WhatsApps and voice notes on 072-702-1702. Lee, great to chat again. Good afternoon. Afternoon, how are you? I'm very good, very good, thank you. Um, we have looked a little bit at uh, behavioral science in the past and about nudges and, and so on, but today we're talking about the retail space and let's see how much of that is, is, is present. Um, I thought it was an interesting one that Tabang raised because sometimes we move through environments without being aware of the cues that fill up that environment that are meant to influence our behavior. And and I completely agree. And I love that you framed it as a sort of uh, a narrative with an intro, a body, a conclusion, because obviously bringing this to some sort of visual language and communicative pattern is is what I love to sort of frame things as. And it certainly is a science. There's a science and there's an art to the layout, hmm. because from the moment you arrive, you're faced with a choice. Are you taking a basket? Are you taking a trolley? Uh, you know, if, if you take a trolley, that's obviously going to determine you buying more. 
And uh, what we're seeing now in some research in America is they, they're actually increasing a trolley size by 40%, making oh. it 40% so that you'll <laughs> buy more. And I mean, that's, that's initially an immediate nudge because we know this from research on, on eating and plate size, that the bigger plate you, you use, the more food you put on your plate. And it's the same with trolleys. You know, the bigger the trolley is, the more that you're going to put into there, even if that's a, a subconscious uh, sort of decision that you're making. You just stay with that a little bit because I know that some retailers, I think it's pick and pay. I haven't observed uh, if, say, a Woolies or a ShopRite or Checkers has those, but they have the shallower trolleys. I absolutely hate those because you, it, they're longer and they're shallower. Uh, and maybe I'm just attached to the old design of, of that trolley. But we also saw trolleys coming, uh, uh, trolley versus basket, uh, coming, becoming quite obvious with COVID-19 to make sure and to force people to keep that one meter distance. 100%. So if you had to take a trolley, and I think a lot of people initially were confused during that level five hard lockdown where suddenly there were no baskets in sight, that really was to sort of nudge that, that uh, social distance between you and another shopper. Um, and, and certainly a lot of these stores are introducing perhaps smaller size trolleys because we don't want people to be spending too much time in these environments um, at the moment. Mm. Um, and, and that's whole different angle like how are these behavioral patterns shifting from an on-site in-store experience to the more online environment which we know we're all sort of gravitating towards at the moment yes so let's look at some of the other aspects about how the layout of grocery stores uh, uh, is being designed to influence the purchasing behavior so uh, the layout specifically what are some of the elements in the layout that influence our choice our choices and behavior Okay, so you now have your either your basket or your trolley, and um, certainly most of us go to a store and have similar groupings of items that we want to pick up. Mm. Uh, a great example here is, you know, you're always going to sort of get bread and milk as your staples. Uh, and uh, as a consumer, you're going to walk in. If, if bread and milk were immediately available, you would grab them and you would leave. And ultimately, that's not really what these stores want you to do. Yeah. They want you to experience the store. They want to to move you through the store in, in, in very specific patterns. So they tend to put your sort of baked goods bread on one side, your butchery maybe middle one side, and then your dairy milk on the other. So just by just by design, you need to move uh, from each section and you're likely to then pick up other items and, and, and buy more. Yes. Well, there's certain hours that I definitely don't go in, <laughs> come to pick up my or observe my own pattern. But as you say, they dot them across the store so that we're able to then to make sure that we walk across so much more and then we're likely to pick that up. But when we do hit those aisles, what is the, the layout? Uh, uh, does, uh, how do they achieve us, you know, to, how do they achieve uh, making me pick up my hand, grab an item and put that in the trolley? So actual product choices is, is such a critical component here because behaviorally, we want things to be easy. We want them to be quick. And mm -hmm. even if we're doing our huge month end grocery shop, you know, from a timing point of view, this tends to be at the end of a day. And we've been faced with so many decisions in that day that having to choose between 20 versions of tomato sauce is, is not something that we want at 6 p.m. at night when we're in Willies <laughs> or Checkers. Yeah. 
So, so one of the very interesting bits of research that's come out, it was from something called the JAM study. And it looked at consumer reactions to having too many choices and, and ultimately said, if, if you presented with a choice, that's great. We want to feel that we're in control and we have some type of free agency. But if you give us too many choices, we're going to walk out the store without buying anything. Hmm. And um, so, so uh, these, these grocery stores are starting to recognize that they can actually boost sales by having fewer category items on the shelves wow. just to make it such a decision for you to just grab the one version of tomato sauce. That's so interesting. So choice just... It, it it just messes up with the matrix. Like we get a little bit of a glitch and then we're overwhelmed and suddenly there's a short circuit or yeah, well, you get the analogy. But who would have thought because we, I would have thought that choice is liberating for people that you feel truly served because you're not being directed in a narrow, uh, towards a narrow uh, selection of items. So it's, it's a fine sort of balance because you do want to have that choice. You don't want to feel like you, you only have one option. Yeah. But when it becomes too overwhelming and now you're trying to decide, do I want the tomato sauce that's vegan without sodium with reduced this and that? And mm. now I'm choosing between brands. It really starts to become this overwhelming thing. Um, and there's, there's a great example of a, a grocery store a retailer in the States called Trader Joe's. And based on this sort of behavioral research, they've made the decision they will only stock three or four items of the same category um, and immediately after having made that decision they saw a 10 percent increase in their sales really just due to that one variable um, that's being incredible implemented. so what does that mean then for shops that say don't have a private label you know um that all have a small private label you know that the 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 stores that have the the range of products under the pick and pay label the checkers label or the woolies label i know woolworths has a lot uh, of items under their private label and fewer outside brands does that have the same effect versus say a pick and pay or a, a shop right that is home to so many fmcg brands and a smaller category of their own private label so I think price sensitivity then does come into the equation. And uh, we know that across these grocery stores, they have certain select items that they'll compete uh, on price with. So examples are milk, bread, and, and even your two liter Coke. Mm. Um, but what's so interesting about some of these behavioral sort of nudges is that they're very subliminal. And so even though we might make a decision, okay, we're going to go to X store because we know the milk is cheaper, um, we do something called anchoring as well. Um, and, and the best example of this actually is if you take restaurants as an example, when we were able to go and buy wine, of course, uh, you would get the wine list and you would see a cheap, the cheapest option and then you would see the most expensive option. And without knowing oh. you know, the intricacies of wine, you would tend to anchor on the middle. So you wouldn't go, it's that Goldilocks uh, uh, sort of adage, not too hot, not too cold, just right. And knowing that people tend to anchor at the middle means that, that retailers like grocery stores can choose to, uh, to, to, to uh, promote and price their most profitable or most margin driving brands or options in that middle mm -hmm. because we know people are going to choose them. So I think that really does play a role.
Mm, so that's a great insight also for uh, restaurateurs or anybody who works with the menu, you know, whose service offering involves people looking at a menu and how you price. Does the whole um, uh, uh, pricing around 99 uh, and bringing it just below the, the whole number, does it still work? It's crazy that it does, but 100%. Uh, saying things are slightly less from a price point of view um, helps you anchor lower. And, and there's a huge perception gap between something that's, you know, 49.99 and 50 Rand. And we see that people then opt for the 49.99. Um, and then there's amazing ways of being able to frame various discounts or specials in the space. You know, are we saying buy one, get one free? Or are we saying 50% of the second option? Um, and, and certainly I spend a lot of time playing between these various call to actions to see in various environments, because it differs across industry, what becomes the nudgiest. <laughs> the nudgiest. Uh, let's talk about language because you're a behavioral linguist and we're not only talking about uh, words per se, but of course that the, the, the language comes in many forms. Is there anything grocery stores are doing from a language perspective? To, to nudge consumer behavior? For me, this is actually the most fascinating of all, and, and obviously I'm biased with my, with my linguistic background, but we're seeing more and more research saying that naming conventions are critical. And when you, where you really highlight flavors of foods and colors and origins, um, you're able to engage people immediately and, and it's far more likely that they're gonna select that item. Oh, So, so again, an example from, from America with Trader Joe's is they, they call their nectarines seasonal orbs of California sunshine. My. Like that, that's actually the <laughs> scan, barcode scan. Um, and then right underneath there, they've got the description, take me on your next picnic. Oh. <laughs> and you can, this becomes this whole lifestyle immersive experience. You're not just buying some type of citrus. You're actually buying your next you know, experience. experience. Yes, you're selling me an idea. You're selling me an experience that I could be having. Wow. Exactly. Um, and we're also seeing it play out in the in the meat-free terminology. So more and more people are moving to vegan or vegetarian-based uh, diets. Um, and some great research came from Sainsbury. So they're a UK grocer. And they actually moved away from referring to things as meat-free and rather called it plant-based or planet-based because just that terminology meat-free it kind of means that if you're ordering or if you're buying something that's vegetarian or vegan it's lacking meat and that wasn't the ideological sort of narrative that they wanted people buying these items to, to feel or experience so they stopped with meat-free and now everything's plant-based planet-based which in itself is it, it just encourages far more uptake and so in the language space, is there also sludge? Because I recall that we spoke about the fact that this needs to be carefully done because when it's not done correctly, it's considered sludge and can put off consumers or not bring about the desired behavior. Look, I mean, sludge is such a fascinating thing. And, and any time we speak about behavioral science, there's always this gray area of morality and sort of ethical principles. And, and what it comes back to is this very theoretical concept of what is libertarian paternalism, which, which sounds overwhelming, but it ultimately means 
we we have a right as practitioners or you know anyone involved in the space to try and gently shove someone or nudge someone to better decisions that are in their best interests. So in a grocery store environment, there's some there's some easy wins here. You've got Willies as an example who moved away all of their high fat, high salt snack items from from that sort of snaking queue aisle. Oh, no, we'll talk about the, the checkout. Oh, we'll talk about the checkout oh, because I suspect it's all uh, issue on its own. Mm-hmm. Knowing that people are going to impulse buy and grab from there, so so they made the decision to to move to healthier types of foods. And it's not to say this is a mandate that you can't still you know buy the chuckles or whatever else the items are, but just at that critical moment where you are far more compelled to pop something into your trolley, uh, they just help to make the decision a bit easier to make the better decision. So these things are always quite defendable when, we, when we're when we speaking about better interests. Obviously gets a little bit murky where you're trying to buy one, get one free with, I don't know, jumbo, high sodium, high fat chips. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's certainly a responsibility on the retailer side to to try and try and marry these, these various uh, pull and push levers. Yes, wow. Um, there are a couple of comments, especially on the question of choice. Fiona says, totally agree with too much choice, i.e. shampoos, conditioners, etc. At Discams, if I can't find my brand, I end up walking away. There's too much to be said about craziness from too much choice. That comes from, from Fiona. So just that giving up, what's happening within us when we just walk away as she's described? Well, that's exactly it. It's a loss for the consumer and it's a loss for the retailer. And and so being able to to really just nudge people to make easier decisions because we're we're overwhelmed. We have so much information being presented to us throughout the day. And it really goes back to like research that's been done to see at what time is someone going to do the big grocery shop? Is it over a weekend? In which case there's probably millions of people with their big trolleys and 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 that feels overwhelming in itself, especially at the moment. Um, or are you the type of shopper that's just going to buy the staples, you know, the the weekly shop or even a daily shop? And it's to try and figure out what are the different consumer segments, how how are they behaving, and how can we, um, you, you know, anchor them or, or frame things in such a way that it's just making life easier for them. Mm-hmm. Here's another one on uh, the question of choice. It says, after asking my girlfriend what she wants for lunch, I've learned there's nothing liberating or easy about having lots of options. It really is more stressful having more choice. So uh, this choice architecture is proving to be quite relatable to, to many people. And it's all about that uh, that balance. Uh, that it's not doesn't mean that more is better. Uh, but also you do want to feel that there is a choice being made that nothing is being almost forced on you. Is that safe to say? And it it, it applies to pretty much every single type of decision in our lives. Yeah. Um, and I can completely relate with, with that listener because more and more we're going on to Uber Eats and we're seeing so many various restaurants and within the restaurant categories, we're seeing so many other different types of food choices. And to have to make that decision it becomes more and more difficult. So you almost want someone to kind of like take the reins and say, here are three options of the three, which, which do you prefer? Here are some of the things to consider from a price point point of view. Mm. We've made it super easy. If it's a, in a, in a grocery store environment, we're putting it eye level. Uh, we're adding other little nudges like discounts or buy two and save 50 Rand. 
or even with their partnerships, uh, these grocery store partnerships, for example, with Discovery Vitality, you've got that iconic V tick, which is saying this is a healthy food item. This has been accredited or approved by a, a, an expert or, you, you know, in our world. Um, and that just helps us to say, OK, well, if it's good enough for Vitality, we're going to pop it in our baskets. Plus, then there's obviously incentives that play a role. Are we earning points? Are we getting cash back? Um, all sorts of wonderful things that then compel us to to buy it. Mm. Uh, we are going to have a lot more after this with Lee uh, Crumble. We are going to look at your voice notes, your WhatsApps. Uh, so many of your questions as well on Twitter have come in and we continue our masterclass as we interrogate really the the, the shop layout, the store layout and what it's intended to achieve. Of course, the idea is for us to have a good shopping experience, but ultimately it's also for us to make that purchase. And the more we shop, you know, better for the retailer. So what is happening within this layout that nudges or influences our behavior? That's what we're looking to understand. We'll talk about, talk about the checkout aisle as well as online shopping to see if there are any of these insights that apply to those as well. Your questions, your calls after this on 011-883-0702-31702 for your SMSs, your WhatsApps and your voice notes as well. 072-7021-702. It's time now for the latest in... 702 Masterclass. And we're back with Lee Crumble as we talk about uh, it's an aspect of behavioral science, I guess, and it influences the decisions around how stores are designed. Uh, Lee, we've got quite a few WhatsApps and questions, but let's first go to the lines. Um, Leanne in Silver Lakes has called. Hi, Leanne. Hi, yes. Azania, um, I agree with one caller who said, if there's too many choices, I actually walk out. Mm-hmm. But what we did with our students, we did a little survey into mouthwashes. And we found there was over 30, 35 different mouthwash brands available, including like Discount Home Brand, Spa's Home Brand, and they market them as tooth whitening or antibacterial, herbal, charcoal, um, all sorts of different names. But when we looked at the ingredients, they basically have all got the same ingredients. And even the ones that were saying antibacterial mm. had nothing in them that was actually different to make them antibacterial. The ones that had herbal all had the same ingredients, but they maybe had a bit of extra, I don't know. Like a little bit of mint here. Mm-hmm. And, and if they said whitening on them, they were much more expensive than the other ones, but the ingredients were again the same. There was nothing extra in them that's going to make them whitening, except <laughs> for I think one or two brands. This came had a, a whitening brand that was actually whitening. But it's such a... Um, it's such an advertising ploy because the labels were so deceptive. They were all basically the same ingredients. Oh, I love that. You and Lee should, uh, you, uh, you and Lee should actually meet up, you know, and share insights. Leanne, thank you for your call. Um, so, Lee, what do you think of this, uh, this close study that they did? I think it comes back to that, that gray area of ethical responsibility. Um, I mean, certainly there should be some sort of consumer ombudsman who's, who's approving these things and saying that once you've labeled it, it does actually have those, those properties or ingredients or, or benefits. Um, but it does show the semantic power of, mm-hmm. of labels and describing products in different ways to cut through the noise. So I'm not surprised at all. Um, but, but certainly it should be something that some type of regulator is, is looking at. Right. There are a couple of WhatsApps that take us into the terrain of uh, the checkout aisle. Um, let's take a listen. Hi, Aza. Great show. Glavin Midrand here. Is it true that shops put um, those most expensive items 
on the aisles at eye level and the cheaper ones right on top so that customers who can't reach them just take the most expensive ones within eye level. I just wanted to know, live in mid-range. No, it's so funny. Even the fact, um, the fact that, at, you know, before you see the, the the cashier, as you're going down that aisle, that last aisle, all of the snacks are there. You know, the bultongs, chocolates, that sort of thing. And as you're standing in the queue, you're waiting to be seen by the cashier. You know, you most of the time you can't really resist, but pick up a chocolate or pick up some bultong, whatever the case may be. I think that's um, also another really smart design uh, feature of these shops okay azania what's with the placing sweets and all those um sugary goodies towards the um the pay uh, towards the tills you find that you know if i am traveling or if i'm shopping with my you know nine-year-old now but i mean when he was younger and you didn't understand why are we in this aisle and you're not picking up sweets you're not picking up that sometimes they place um little toys there and why? Why do they do that? Mm-hmm. Frustrated. Absolutely frustrated. <laughs> Let's look at the signs behind the checkout aisle. So, I mean, just to, to address what that, that last listener spoke to, I mean, that's really dark nudging at its best or worst, depending on if you're the consumer or the retailer. Yeah. Um, but it, it's really about making it easy. If you're in the checkout aisle, you, you know, you're likely queuing, you've got some time, your eyes are wandering, you're seeing things, it's very likely you're going to pick something up. Um, and of course, if, if you're dark nudging, you're going to, you're going to pop the, slightly more expensive things eye level because of course that's where we're looking that's where we're going to grab from and um, certainly if children are involved that's that's an even additional dark nudge because you've got the little kids sort of wanting all these wonderful little things mm. um, and that's why it's very admirable of, of brands you know grocers like Woolies to, to make the call that they're going to go the healthier option and they certainly are still seeing the same uh, the same purchasing uptake so it's not to say that everyone just stopped now people were still buying those things but now it shifted slightly into a slightly more healthy um, environment and and what we're also seeing now is that things like sanitizers and masks those are now being placed in the checkout aisles which is phenomenal because these are of course healthier behaviors you're wanting people to adopt and by making it so easy for them to just grab the the mask in that checkout aisle, you're far more likely that they're going to do it. And then, of course, there's a knock-on effect there uh, for, for the whole country. Are you saying that removing the goodies um, at the checkout aisle has not reduced our purchasing of those of those goodies? So it has reduced the purchasing okay. of those goods. What I mean is it hasn't reduced the sort of income or margins that the grocers are making or retailers are making because we're still picking something else up. Mm. So they haven't now made a, a decision that's going to be bad for their bottom line um oh it just it just shows the power yeah. of that checkout aisle you're a captive audience so whatever's there you're likely to pick it up whether it's 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 a treat or not and and this is tried and tested research they've done a lot of work in um american high schools looking at cafeterias uh, you know where the, where, where the kids get the they can purchase 
just food or whatever, they can choose food in, in that environment for their lunch. And by moving bowls of fruit uh, to be first, as an example, and the, the unhealthier chips and snacks further along, uh, immediately that was seeing some sort of shift that people were choosing the healthier option. Even And in fact, even just seeing it helps you act more healthily. So a, a great tip is, even if you're not a huge fan of, let's say, apples, have the bowl of apples on your kitchen counter because the knock-on effect of that sort of health halo <laughs> helps you act in healthier ways later on in your day. Well, let's take a listen to this voice note from Karabo. Hi, Azaniam Karabo from Mamelodi. Um, groceries and non-foods manager I've worked for two of the largest retailers in South Africa. Um, you know, um, more especially for your for your groceries and non-foods, you know, you know when you walk into a store, you know that um, your fruits and veg actually reflects what uh, the freshness of the store. Um, always your fruits and vegetables have to be at your entrance of the store. Actually, that's what portrays the whole um, perception of the store, the freshness, Actually, it paints, it, it, it paints a picture of what's going on in the store. Uh, actually, when you see there's fresh fruits, actually, you know that your cereals are going to be fresh and your cereals are not going to be expired, all your meat and everything. That's actually what paints the, the whole the whole perception of the store. So it's, it's, very, it, it's a very interesting topic that you are actually master classing today. So <laughs> I like it. Thanks. The grocery and foods manager giving us a little bit more insight. So the halo that you're talking about also transfers to the retail space itself when we see those vegetables and fruit and uh, how crisp and fresh they are, you know, gives us a certain perception of the space. And that's so true. I, I can't think of one that does, especially the major ones who don't have their fruit and veg at the front. Yeah, it's, it's such a great point. And it's not just fruit and veg. You'll see fresh flowers there too. Yes. And this brings us on a bit of like an experiential angle. So you're not just going there and buying something and walking out and, and there hasn't been any thought to, as we said, the, the aisles and the shelves and the design. Um, there's, there's even experiential moments. So smelling freshly baked bread, as an example. This is my favorite behavioral example. Mm. Um, you, you take that for granted. You're in a grocery store. You should smell that. But actually, the majority of uh, these stores don't do the baking on site. Um, they actually have it delivered in, you know, in the mornings, but they still wheel the cart of freshly baked produce right through the store so that these amazing, delicious aromas uh, fill up the space. And, um, and, and that obviously encourages this very intimate, engaging, homely feel that, that makes you want to be in that store. Yes. Um, and then, and then to, to your point about music um, and in different retail environments, I had a, a very insightful chat once with uh, Chef David Higgs of Marble and Saint uh, mm -hmm. the fame. And, and he spoke to me about some of the behavioral things in the restaurant space, where if they want people to eat quicker, uh, and certainly not to say that Marble and Saint are doing this, this is really you know, restaurant insights generally, globally. Yeah. Uh, they'll, they'll play quicker music so that you move through courses quicker. Whereas where they want you, to, want you to slow down and perhaps for your desserts and your coffees and stuff, They'll, they'll play slower music and you mimic that in your own behaviors, which is just oh, wow. so fast. <laughs> that 
That is so true. It's absolutely true. Celine Dileha says uh, on Twitter, she says, it means you could never shop at Small Street downtown because the loudness of the music plus the DJ at the door calling customers to again, 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 again. All the stores seem to compete for the loser's radio. <laughs> Small Street defies a, a case study. So that's that's what Celine Dileha is saying. I cannot stand very loud retail spaces. I just feel like I can't think. I can't, I don't know how the, the people who work in those stores cope with that level of, of noise. Um, another one of your WhatsApp says, good that you talked about noise at retail stores, lifestyle streetwear shops, especially for sneakers are the worst. And they give examples of these stores, archive, sports scene, cross trainer, shesha, etc. Yarr, that loud hip hop, I'm a piano noise gives me headaches. Maybe their target market is 16 to 30-year-olds. Maybe they appreciate it as a 35-year-old. It's a sign that I must be shopping for formal shoes. (laughs) Is it a sign of our age? Well, we'll let Lee uh, answer that after the break. Um, Is there an age... How does age affect our behavior, right, in terms of the kind of stores that we prefer and not prefer? 702 Masterclass. Ah, Tabang says today's masterclass on shop layouts is just brilliant. So many things make sense now. There's a science to it. Love it. And as my guest Lee said, there's also an art to it. And this was also uh, the request of one of our listeners, Tabang Seoto, requesting that we look at store layout and how it influences our behavior. You can also suggest a masterclass, by the way. Email azania at 702.co.za. Robert says, fascinating conversation. No wonder restaurants play the cranberries when they want you to leave. <laughs> that's what he says and then Gabriel MG says reason supermarkets um, uh, cash sasa payments is not really to provide a service chances um, of just taking the money and walking out are slim you are more likely to buy something you don't even need Lee that's quite an that's quite an insight because we now also get to pay our bills um, electricity bills and so on at uh, at some of the retailers at the cashier. We get to buy airtime. So there are things that take us there that might lead us to walking down the aisles. Completely. And I mean, you can understand that a retailer wants the foot traffic and they want you in there. And it's, it's very likely that you're going to grab other things or at least uh, choose to, if you're going to make a payment or get your concert ticket or whatever wonderful pre-COVID things we used to do, um, that, that you're going to choose that store to then buy your, your fresh fruits and your, and your various produce items. So the more compelling they can be, the more value add they can offer, the more likely that you're going to be there. Mm-hmm. A couple of questions uh, remaining as well. One is about lighting. Um, I'll find it in a moment, but first let's come to this one. It says, I'm curious to know whether there are examples of nudges that have been outlawed in grocery stores by, for example, the Consumer Protection Act. And two, what does the uh, impulse buy most often? So uh, two sides to this question. What of a regulatory uh, an aspect um, that has to do with regulations and law? And then a personal one about what you impulse buy. Okay, well, let's start with the regulatory ones. Um, that really comes down to, again, this concept of nudges not being things that are mandates or are forcing you to do anything. Because by removing, for example, the high fat items or snacks in the aisles doesn't mean you can't go and buy it somewhere else, uh, you know, in, in the same store. So your your sort of freedoms aren't um, infringed in this way. Um, so I guess it's quite difficult for 
various regulatory bodies to outlaw things uh, mm. definitively. But certainly that toothpaste example, that mouthwash example, uh, th- I mean, that, that transcends nudges. You can't falsely claim that certain products do things that they don't do in order to, uh, you know, to excite people more and break through noise and get them to choose your product. So I certainly think that the world of nudging, as it becomes more and more prevalent and we get more and more exposed to it, uh, in some way, there needs to be regulatory bodies who are who are looking at this. But while your freedoms of of choice and and your right to choose things are still uh, protected, um, you know, it's it's up to us as consumers to make sure that we're not falling into the dark nudge traps. Yes, uh, one from King Spoo, He says, after this week, I'm convinced that some malls are designed in a way that you are left dazed and confused hungry and lustful. Uh, The point is to keep you there for as long as they can with perfect lighting, convenient uh, foods and pretty displays with perfectly shaped mannequins. Absolutely. And here's the question from Chris in the East Rand about lighting. He says, please ask about lighting, warm lighting, cool lighting, bright lighting, dim lighting. Any insights about how this shapes our behavior? Look, it absolutely does. I know that an, from a personal point of view, that sort of fluorescent lighting that is really reminiscent of medical facilities and hospitals and even like school classrooms back in the day, that's a bit sort of like triggering to me. And I'm, and I'm, not, and I'm not wanting to be in that type of environment for very long. So, I mean, on, on the one side, you could actually try and move people quicker through some type of journey by having lighting that's not actually conducive to, to feeling comfortable. Um, but certainly where you want people to stay, you know, in restaurants, if you're wanting people to stay longer in grocery stores, the sort of warm lighting is is really the one to, to go with. Uh, that said, you want your product placement uh, and your display stands to be really well lit. Mm. Um, again, you want color to come through. You, you want people to immediately feel that this is appealing and attractive and, and something that I want my senses to, to experience. Wonderful. Vishal, uh, with well, quite a cheeky one, says they should play fast music at home affairs and the traffic department. It might make people work faster. Uh, yeah, it might be worth a try. Maybe we'll speak to J-Pal about uh, the sort of things they've, they, because they also look at behavioral science and uh, put together different initiatives and ideas, particularly in consultation with government. Uh, but thank you so much, Lee. It's been lovely chatting to you and giving us all this, these insights. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And just to answer that other question, chuckles are definitely my downfall. So I'm peanut, really glad they're not. Uh, is it peanut raisins? Which which ones are yours? Because I think they're four that, variations. The, the, the default one, you know, that red packet one. Yes, so yes, that, yes. That's the one. <laughs> Mine is the one with the peanuts, the yellow packet. Oh, I am done. Finished. Well, thank you, Lee. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. And just uh, just a, a last sort of note, as we move into the online shopping world, these principles are the same. Uh, you know, they're ubiquitous across whether it's, what, what channel it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all about making things easy, making them attractive, making it the, the obvious choice so that you're not leaving it too much in the hands of a consumer who is arguably so overwhelmed already by life in general. Yes, yes, yeah, we were supposed to touch on that. Thank you for adding that as we conclude. That was uh, Lee Crumble, behavioral linguist and the founder of Breadcrumbs.